Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. Which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that He appeared to Cephas and then the Twelve. Then He appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James and Then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Bow with me in prayer. Father, as we come to your word this morning, we pray that your spirit would cultivate our hearts to receive your word with faith. God, have your way in us this morning. Let your word uh, be, be alive and active among your people. And any here who don't know Christ as their Savior, we're thankful to gather inside this morning around your word. In Christ's name, amen. Please be seated. The main point of our text today is that the gospel is better than all that distracts us from living by grace. The gospel is what it's all about. And with the track record of being distracted by so many peripheral things, Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 15 to remind them what is of first importance, that Christ died for sins, was buried and resurrected, so that those who are his can live by grace. Now Paul points to his own example of living by grace with full awareness of the gospel Christ crucified for sins, Christ buried and resurrected as the foundation for Christian faith. Now when Christians get distracted by peripheral issues, they lose focus on what matters most. Living lives that are powered, motivated, and inspired by God's grace revealed in the gospel. Now if we don't understand grace and the work of Christ, we lose focus And we make peripheral things the center of what we do. So point one in your outline. Why Paul wrote this to the Corinthians and why we need to listen. Verses one and two. Now I would like to remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Paul starts out by reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that he preached. Now there's a gentle, kind of a chiding tone here that he needs to remind them. 
It's kind of a soft rebuke. Remember earlier in Corinthians how, how amped up and excited the Corinthians were about knowledge. Well, the knowledge of the gospel that Paul passed on to them, they'd been neglecting. We've seen that over and over again. He reminds them that they received this gospel message. He saw them receive it. He saw their faith. He reminds them that it's this work of the gospel in their lives that's saving them in this ongoing way. That's what we call sanctification. It's producing more Christ-likeness in them. But he also acknowledges that it's possible that some never believed when he writes, if you hold fast to the word I preach to you. In that sense, we see by our observation that it's kind of conditional. If they don't hold fast to it, the last phrase of verse 2 indicates that they really didn't believe at all. If they hold fast, it's because they believed the word that he preached and they trusted it. The object of the, their faith was the gospel message. Now, there's a bit of a warning here. Paul's writing to a church who thinks that they're Christians. But he makes clear that vain belief, belief that doesn't last, belief that gets distracted and carried away from the content of the gospel, means a person hasn't really believed at all. Now, Paul's reminding the Corinthians of the gospel that they need to believe in and hold on to instead of all the things that take their attention. If you've been with us previously in our series in 1 Corinthians, most of this letter, Paul's been addressing issues that the Corinthians are involved in. Now, things that are distracting them from living focused on the good news about Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Now, sometimes, we can recall, Paul corrected them from blatant, outright sin. In chapter 5, a man had taken his father's wife as his own and remained in the church, and the church was even encouraging it. Chapter 6, remember, they were suing one another inside the church. Chapter 11, they were excluding some from the Lord's Supper because of pride and status and symbol associated with their position in society. Sin took their focus away from what is best. Other times, Paul helped them to reorder their fellowship around what is most important. Remember just these previous three chapters, 12 through 14, we see that their distraction with spiritual gifts had kind of carried them away, away from the gospel. Chapters 8 through 10, Paul discusses the right use of Christian freedom and how the focus isn't to be on their personal liberty, but to be on how they can encourage their brother and sister in Christ to see the gospel more clearly and to not cause them to stumble. Chapters 3 and 4, Paul's addressing factions that were forming based on who their favorite teacher was. Now, appreciating your teacher isn't bad. Having a preacher or teacher that you feel like you really connect with isn't bad. But if it becomes the reason that you go to church, you're off base. And it's wrong, and it's become a distraction. The Corinthians were often distracted from the saving grace that's revealed in the gospel. Now, why do we today, why do we need to listen to Paul's words? Well, cultural winds blow and change. 
But one thing has not changed. People are easily distracted. We all have a sort of spiritual attention deficit, right? Every age has specific distractions that are maybe more theirs than another generation's. There was an employer survey conducted recently that reported that the biggest distractions at work were cell phones and texting, right? It's right in your pocket. It's right in mine. I had to turn it to airplane mode to not get distracted while I'm preaching. The internet, gossip, social media, email, coworkers dropping by, meetings, smoke and snack breaks. And Paul wasn't writing about distractions from work. Paul was writing about distractions from the gospel. So what are some of our distractions from the gospel today? To Paul this morning. To Orchard this morning. Now maybe they aren't all that different than some of what the Corinthians were. Who do you follow? John MacArthur or Nine Marks? Chuck Swindoll or Kevin DeYoung? John Stott or Martin Lloyd-Jones? Perhaps my biggest concern for my own soul and for all in our fellowship here at Orchard in 2020 is that we'd be distracted from our gospel ministry by this crazy, tumultuous year that every one of us is having. Suffering can distract us from the gospel. COVID and masks, politics, the economy, rioting and conspiracies, now, these are all important things, maybe minus the conspiracies. But they're not the gospel. In the midst of this tumultuous year, we still have the temptation to sin that's ever-present. The infirmity of our flesh lingers and, and tempts us and entices us. The devil prowls, leaving temptations and traps for us, seeking any opportunity to devour So what are we to do? The gospel must remain the center. It's the pillar that holds the whole structure, the whole body that is Christ's church up. We must rally to the gospel, brothers and sisters. Now there's a common trap that's waiting for all of us. And it's the way that we engage in discussion about divergent views about any of the day's hot topics. Maybe the, the best example of this is social media. Social media is a medium. It's a platform that you communicate through, both to and receive. In some ways, it's helpful. You see pictures and updates and loved ones, honestly, all over the world. Look how much little Johnny's grown up, so on and so forth. And this is great. It's even a medium that we can use to communicate the gospel, to to proclaim his excellencies, so that other people would see it and hear it and know about Christ and his good work for us. But it's also a medium that can foster an unhealthy environment where many are emboldened to share their unfiltered, and quite frankly, unwanted opinions. It's often divisive, unproductive, and hurtful. Let's be honest, social media is not a very good place to have a discussion. 
over a coffee or a meal, on your front porch, maybe your back deck, or around your kitchen table. These are great places to connect and to engage. Now, foolishly engaging through the medium that is social media can be a great distraction to us, to our own souls, but it can also be a great distraction from the message and responsibility that we bear as Christ's church to boast of Christ. Now, on social media, one of the traps that I think is so enticing is to make our priority political or social activism instead of maintaining gospel witness. When we do this, not only are we distracted ourselves, but we begin distracting others by putting political expediency and efficiency above proclamation of the gospel. Now, some social and political, political issues are gospel issues. And we need to speak about these things. We need to, before we speak, think about them, pray about them. Have close, careful discussion with people you trust about these things. Engage in these issues in the appropriate setting. For the most part, I think the appropriate setting is directly with the person you want to engage with, not on a public forum. And don't get me wrong, Christians need to be engaged politically and socially because there are gospel issues involved. I think that's part of our witness as Christ followers. But when we confuse the non-negotiable truth of the gospel for peripheral matters that are debatable, we're prioritizing the wrong thing. And subtly, and sometimes not so subtly, we buy into a falsehood that political activism will bring about spiritual change. If only it was the people I voted for got to office, then our country would be rescued from this depravity. I think that's the biggest lie that is before us today as Christians in this realm. Now, we want government to rule well, to fulfill their God-ordained role of restraining evil and promoting good. But the church, that's Christians, bring the good news of Jesus Christ, not the government. If we conflate the two, the church becomes a distraction. A distraction from the good news instead of a city on the hill whose lamp burns brightly for the gospel. The gospel is the center of who we are and what our message is. The gospel is of first importance. We too at Orchard, we need this reminder. So what is the reminder that Paul offered? Well, I've said it a bunch. I've said the gospel. Well, what is the gospel? Now we prevent distraction from believing in vain by the ongoing remembrance of Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. That Christ was crucified, that he was buried, and that he rose from the dead. Verses 3 through 8. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Cephas, then the twelve, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Now this is really direct, really clear. The Corinthians needed that. 
This also serves as a great guide. It's a gospel witness for non-believers. It's a sort of apologetic and a framework that as we delve into the gospel with friends, coworkers, neighbors, anyone who doesn't know Christ as Lord, this section of 1 Corinthians 15, it's one of the most succinct places you can find the gospel articulated. Paul takes the first four chapters of Romans to explain what he does in a couple verses here. He obviously goes into more depth in the beginning of Romans. The first facet of the gospel that Paul highlights here is that Christ died for our sins. And we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, if you remember, that Paul didn't just preach Christ. He preached Christ crucified. There's some things that are presupposed in this description of Christ's action. God's righteous, holy character and our, as humans, lack of righteous, holy character are presupposed. God's justness is presupposed. God is just. Perfect justice is his nature. Now, God being righteous and holy and also just means that there, there has to be, there's no way for there not to be a penalty for sin. Because God is just, his wrath burns against sin. God's wrath is not like our wrath. Our wrath is fleeting and fickle. God's wrath is perfectly justified. His wrath has been perfectly executed, and it will be perfectly executed at the end of time. His wrath is against sin and those who remain in sin. Adam and Eve... The first humans sinned against God. Since then, all of humanity has sinned. Romans 3.23, we read it this morning. For all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. Now we all, left to ourselves, would have the righteous wrath of God burning against us with no way out. An intervention had to happen. And it was an intervention that couldn't come from inside of us because we were empty of anything good. And so, in his great love, God sent his own son to pay the penalty for sin. Just like we read this morning, he's the just one and the justifier. Those who sinned couldn't pay the price. So God paid the price at the cost of his son's life. God will not relent of his wrath forever. Listen to these verses in Exodus that describe so well both God's love and mercy and his justice. This is Exodus 34, verses 6 and 7. The Lord passed before Moses and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast love for thousands and forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. Now today, we shouldn't be surprised, really any day, we shouldn't be surprised that this message about sin, wrath, judgment, 
is so offensive to the self-righteous. This message that all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory is an offensive message in a pluralistic, relativistic, humanistic, human-centered environment. Because it supposes that there's one God who decides what sin is. Most other worldviews, either each person decides what is sin or not, or there's just not a standard for right and wrong. Morally, this leads to chaos. Spiritually, it leads to self-salvation, self-righteousness. But the offense of the gospel is not new. Remember in chapter 1, Paul wrote, The word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, folly to the Gentile, and a stumbling block to the Jews. Now this is the message that we're called to faithfully remember and boast in. And Christians, we need to remember Christ's great sacrifice. We need to remember the debt that we couldn't pay, that God and his love covered for us by having his own son crucified for our sins. If you've ever wondered, maybe you're not a Christian, or maybe you are a Christian, and you've wondered, why, why do we get together every week? What's the big deal about every week? We remember his sacrifice when we gather. That's why we pass the bread and the cup at the Lord's Supper. And we need God's word to shape what we value, to shape our character, to change who we are in that sanctifying way. And so we come each week and we sit under the teaching of the living and active word of God. Next, Paul says that Christ was buried. Now, th this is his way of saying it really happened. The whole thing. The cross, the death, the burial. You, you don't bury a guy who just faked his death. It's known as the swoon theory. It's kind of been carried on throughout church history. But yeah, it never really happened. He got on the cross, didn't really die, and then three days later he just said he had risen. You don't bury a guy if the crucifixion was just a big hallucination and not really real. The burial of Jesus is proof that he died and paid the debt that we couldn't. Well, Craig Blomberg in his commentary on 1 Corinthians makes a, an observation about other religions' main characters and how they don't really necessarily have to be real. And the events described in some of these other traditions don't have to be literal. In most Eastern religions, while there are some historical figures, uh, many of them are mythical, uh, sort of encompassed in a philosophical system. And consider this, if, if it hadn't been the prophet Muhammad that prophesied, but someone else, would it change anything about Islam? In today's popular religion of secular humanism, everything's subjective and doesn't really need to be based on much besides personal feelings. You do you, is a common saying. Now, if you take Jesus' real historical life, death, burial, and resurrection out of the storyline, it all falls apart. There's nothing left but tradition that's devoid of anything that's real or substantive. 
Now next, Paul says Jesus was raised on the third day. Paul fleshes out the truth of the resurrection in the next passage more fully, next week's sermon text. But he introduces it here. You see, some did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. And so they were saying that Christ wasn't really raised. Verse 12 of chapter 15 says, Now if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there's no resurrection of the dead? Paul shows that this undermines the truth of the gospel. Verse 14, Paul continued, And if Christ has has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We aren't saved by theological ideas about Christ. We are saved by his actual life, death, burial, and resurrection. If Jesus Christ wasn't real, if he wasn't actually crucified and buried and raised, everything Christianity points to is false. And so our lives depend on Jesus. Now today... Another popular saying that you'll hear is YOLO, which stands for you only live once. There's these videos on YouTube with the title, People Are Awesome. They show some incredible human feats, people putting squirrel suits on and flying down the side of huge fjords or buildings, towers, not saying it's all legal. Crazy bike and boarding tricks. I mean, just incredible things. And creativity and ingenuity that are characteristic of image bearers are on display in some of these things. I remember seeing one of these videos once that had YOLO kind of scrolling throughout this video, the whole video. But that isn't true. (laughs) This isn't all that there is. We will be raised with Christ. As great as some human accomplishment is, this is a minute comparison, infinitely smaller, to what we'll experience when we're raised anew with Christ. We will be resurrected, brothers and sisters. We'll have uh, new bodies and new heavens and new earth. This is our hope. This is what we long for. Today, this, what we see, what we live and experience, it's, it's not all there is. Now, to add weight and validity to the resurrection, Paul gives a list of people that Jesus appeared to after he was resurrected. Paul mentions that Jesus appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive at the writing of 1 Corinthians, Paul says. Then he appeared to James. Lastly, he appeared to Paul. Now, this is the only place in Scripture, this is a little fun fact, where the group of 500 is mentioned. It could be that this crowd, this is the crowd that was present when Jesus ascended to heaven, but the correlation is never made. Now, Jesus appeared to two people who didn't trust in him prior to this resurrection appearance. His brother James, that he grew up with, and the Apostle Paul. To me, this is incredible to me. Two people who didn't believe in him. And we have, there's record of that. Paul was persecuting the church and James was just sort of indifferent and, and not part of what Christ was doing prior to his crucifixion. They believe in him. They profess faith in him. 
and they serve him. James was the leader of the church in Jerusalem, and Paul, of course, the great missionary to the Gentiles. When Jesus' resurrected body was witnessed by many, it's a historical fact. It happened, and our hope is tied to it, is what Paul is driving at. Now, by what authority did Paul proclaim these things? Paul says that he delivered as of first importance what he also received. He received this message from Jesus. This message wasn't Paul's. It wasn't original to him. But Paul goes further than this. Paul's argument is grounded in Scripture. We've seen Paul give us opinion earlier in the book of 1 Corinthians. But the thing that is of first importance, Paul stands not on his opinion, but he stands on Scripture. Paul doesn't quote any specific Scriptures here. He's likely thinking of all of it, the whole narrative that points to Christ. Now, the overarching theme in Scripture is this, that God created, He loves the rebellious image bearers, and ever since they walked away from Him, He's been working to bring them back, all pointing to the cross of Jesus. Scripture attests to this, sometimes very explicitly and sometimes more subtly. Isaiah 53, for instance, says this, speaking of Christ. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. Maybe Paul, like Peter, the apostle, was thinking of Psalm chapter 16 that Peter actually quoted in a sermon in Acts chapter 2. Here's an excerpt from that. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, this is Psalm 16, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades, or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Oh, how magnificent are the scriptures that declare the glories of Christ. Now, Paul didn't just stand on the Old Testament, the scripture. But in verse 11, Paul refers to the unity of all the apostles' teaching. Verse 11 whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Their teaching, just like the Old Testament, all points to the gospel of Jesus. The whole of Scripture points to Christ, to God's exalted Son, sent to earth to die, be buried, resurrected, to redeem sinners 
and restore creation. The faith of all subsequent Christians, of you and I, is tied to the apostles' witness of Jesus crucified, buried, and resurrected. This is the message that it's all about. So, what's a right response to the gospel and to everything else? Well, verses 9 through 11 say this. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Paul says, last of all, as one untimely born, interesting word usage, the word actually means miscarriage. Paul refers to his birth as this miscarried, untimely birth, because he didn't see Christ until after Christ had ascended, and Christ appeared to him. Now, chronologically speaking, when Paul says last apostle, or excuse me, that he was the last to see Christ, he's referring to, he's the last apostle. That office is closed after Paul. And Paul goes on to acknowledge that he is unworthy to be called an apostle because he persecuted the church of God. Uh, this is not really about that specific sin, like because he was a persecutor of the church. Paul was a sinner. It sinned against this holy, righteous God. But Paul makes clear it was by the grace of God that he was chosen. It was by God's grace that Paul now is a vessel to be used by God for God's purposes. And this is grace and uh, works Faith and works in Paul is very strong right here. This would be akin, this little section, to James when he says, you show me your faith and I'll show you my works. And Paul writes, his grace to me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than all of them. Yet not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Paul sees grace. He gets it. Christ appears. He sees that he was persecuting Jesus' followers. And he turns from it. And he says, I saw it, and I didn't just sit there. No, I worked harder, he says, than all of them, referring to the apostles, the other apostles. This is a bold statement. It's quite a claim. But Paul doesn't take credit. He points again to the grace of God that is with him. Now, faith that has no works is vain belief. Faith without fruit reveals itself to be belief that is vain. It's not really faith. Now, how is Paul's response to the gospel a model for our response and what our response should be? First, acknowledge your need for a Savior. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge your unworthiness before a righteous, holy God who who you've sinned against. Remember this regularly. Now acknowledge his grace revealed to you in Jesus Christ's life, death, and resurrection. This is the good news. This is the gospel. 
We need to remember this daily, brothers and sisters. Now, have you heard the gospel like this before today? Many of you probably have. I hope so, if you're part of Orchard. What was your response to this gospel? Have you responded by putting faith in Christ for salvation from your sins? Is your hope in His deliverance and the eternal glory that you will share and experience with Him one day? If you haven't responded with faith, I plead with you to do so now. Our Creator, yours and mine, is loving and good and He's sovereign over all of creation. He'll return one day on the clouds of heaven to receive those who are his and to punish those who remain in sin and not in Christ. He's been working since the first humans rebelled to to restore us to this relationship. Now, this is where our hope comes from. This is, uh, this, is, this is the excitement that we can experience as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we have to remember also, this is another daily thing, if you've placed your faith in Christ, remember that grace spurs works. Work doesn't earn grace. And Paul writes that he was chosen by grace, not by his worthiness, In fact, Paul makes clear, despite his unworthiness, he was persecuting the church. He was chosen to serve the Lord. And he points out how hard he worked because of how great the grace of God is. Grace reminds us what it's all about. Grace reminds us that our Heavenly Father wants to be united with us again. He longs for this. Over and over throughout history and time, He's sent prophets and people, and he chose a nation, and he sent his son so that we would see his love. Now, I'm no cowboy, but I think I found a cowboy illustration for this one. Cowboys wear spurs. I think the spur is to help move the horse. The spurs are a a reminder that the horse needs to get moving. Grace, I think, is kind of like spurs, isn't it? We're reminded that we need to move, that we need to work when we see God's grace to us. Grace, just like the spurs don't, it doesn't cause us to do nothing. It causes us to work. Now in Romans, Paul says his spiritual act of worship, his response to grace is to offer his body as a living sacrifice. Really, all of his life now, is a living sacrifice. He's motivated and spurred forward by the gospel to do what? To make Christ more magnified to others. This is what it's all about. This is a Christian's ongoing right response to the gospel. Now, if we behold and understand the gospel of Jesus and the newness of life that that brings, put simply, we hold the gospel tightly and everything else a little less tightly. Of course, there's varying degrees to this. The gospel of Jesus is of first importance. 
So how should we respond to important things without being so consumed by them that they're a distraction to us? And how do we respond in a way that doesn't distract others from the gospel? Well, first of all, we need to realize that we can't respond to everything, nor do we need to. Remember that your life, your social media profile, your work life, your life in your neighborhood, for goodness sakes, even driving down the road, should all magnify the gospel of Jesus. Now, just because you drive a certain way doesn't mean you're going to get to preach the gospel to someone. But it's important to remember that all of our life should adorn the gospel. That's the main lens that we need to look at the world and all these important issues through. Now, I wish I could tell you that that means it's really simple and it's easy. And um, I know exactly what position we all should take on every important issue that faces us today. But I can't. I can tell you that whatever you decide should be calibrated by the gospel. Now, how to engage about it with others should be calibrated by the gospel. To make Jesus more clear to others through your speech, your attitude, and your actions. Now, this is what the Corinthians were struggling with. And this is why Paul reminded them that this is what was of first importance. I want to leave you with one poignant example of what it looks like to respond to the issues of the day. Jonathan Isaac, some of you may have seen this. Jonathan Isaac, a professional basketball player for the Orlando Magic, made a decision Friday night, this is just a couple days ago, to stand up while the national anthem was playing, even though the rest of his team and the other team were, were kneeling, to protest injustice in America. He also made the decision to not wear the Black Lives Matter t-shirt that all the others had donned for the, for the warm-ups. Now, whatever you think about his decision to do these things, and we may have differences about that, that's fine. Listen to his rationale when he was asked about it after the game. And now millions have heard this. He was asked, do you believe that black lives matter? Absolutely, I believe black lives matter. A lot went into my decision. And part of it is my thought that kneeling or wearing a Black Lives Matter t-shirt don't go hand in hand with supporting black lives. My life has been supported by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Everyone is made in the image of God and we all fall short of God's glory. Each and every one of us, each and every day, do things we shouldn't do. We say things we shouldn't say. We hate and dislike people that we shouldn't hate and dislike. And sometimes it gets to the point where we point fingers about whose evil is worse, and sometimes it comes down to simply whose evil is most visible. I felt like I wanted to just take a stand on, I felt like we all make mistakes, but I think the gospel of Jesus Christ is that there's grace for us, and that Jesus came and died for our sins, and that we all will come to an understanding of that, and that God wants to have a relationship with us. I think that we can get past all the things in our world that are messed up and jacked up. I think when you look around, racism isn't the only thing that plagues our society, that plagues our nation, that plagues our world. And I feel like coming together on that message, that we want to get past not only racism, but everything that plagues us as a society, I feel like the answer to it is the gospel. Mr. Isaac seems to understand 
what is of first importance? He was asked a follow-up question. It's, it's good enough, I have to keep reading. He doubled down and he made it even more clear. Follow-up question, can you explain what you feel like religion has to do with kneeling for the anthem to protest against racism and police brutality? Well, I mean, I don't see it as religion for myself. I see it as a relationship with God, with the Son of God who died for our sins. I feel like not only kneeling or putting on a t-shirt is the answer. Black lives are supported through the gospel. All lives are supported through the gospel. We all have things we do wrong, and sometimes it gets into a place where we point fingers about who's wrong is worse. We all fall short of God's glory. And at the end of the day, whoever will humble themselves and seek God and repent of their sins, then we could see it in a different light, that we could see our mistakes and people's mistakes in a different light. And it would help bring people together and get past skin color and get past anything that is on the surface that doesn't deal with the hearts of men and women. This is the message that our world needs most. This is what it's all about. If we miss this, church, we've lost the center and the pillar that holds us up. Many will reject it, but this is the message that we've been entrusted with. So as we leave, let us all be reflective. Let us all be prayerful and intentional about how this message needs to be adorned by every one of us as we go. Please stand as I close in prayer. Heavenly Father, you've given us this message. This is our message as your church. Spirit, guide us. Give us wisdom in our daily interactions, our daily dealings, the way we respond to important things, the way we deal with temptation. Lord, lead us by your spirit that we would make much of the gospel in the way we live, in our attitude, in all our actions and our words. We're so thankful for this message, and we acknowledge as a church this morning that we're totally dependent upon Christ and his work on our behalf. And Lord, your grace, it spurs us now to works. We want to work hard for your glory and for your good and for the good of all people, Lord. Lead us to this end, I pray. Amen.